Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Um, I reached out to you to talk about the JFK assassination because I've seen some of your talks on DP UK and also Gary Severson uh, managed to connect us together. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? I'm Gary Schoner. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Grew up in Philadelphia. Been involved, was involved with the case very early in the game. Now, when it comes to where you focus in the JFK assassination, could you explain to me how you even got started into the JFK assassination? Yeah, I attended a lecture by uh, Mark Lane uh, in the fall of uh, 1964 uh, uh, at at Cornell University. It was the same audience in which Edward J. Epstein got turned onto the case. It was literally the same night, although I never knew him at, at Cornell. Um, and uh, that got me going. I uh, Early in the game, I got in touch with, uh, I ordered the, I saved up my pennies and ordered the 26 volumes, which you could get for $50. But that was a lot of money to me in those days. I was an undergraduate without not much money. I got in touch with Vince Salandria, partly because he was in Philadelphia. And Vince was became a, a you know a lifelong friend um and uh, i that that really got me rolling i mark lane's talk absolutely started me rolling and i i got hooked i looked i and going through the 26 volumes i got interested in anything that originated from pennsylvania since i was from philadelphia and sure enough found a file that happened in pennsylvania which led me to investigate that I got in touch with Harold Weisberg. I don't remember how, but it was early in the game. And Hal and I were uh, friends and I, I did a lot of work with him over the years. Uh, I eventually made trips to the National Archives. Uh, and the, the way it would work is I'd meet with Harold beforehand to get assignments, things he wanted checked out. Then I had my own list. And then when I, I, I would... Uh, People would chip in money to pay for all the copying of documents, and I would then not only share the whole lot with Harold, but eventually um, I would share with other critics. I sent Dave Lifton a bunch of stuff, I, Mary Farrell, a whole bunch of the critics. If I found something, I would send it on. Um, and then in, um, I wrote a uh, series for the Minneapolis Star Tribune on their op-ed, an op-ed series called in 60 Crucial Minutes uh, that aired in uh, February of 1966 uh, or 1967. Uh, for And then I, I wrote a, a piece for um, uh, Ivory Tower Magazine, which was a publication at the University of Minnesota campus. Um, and eventually Vince and I and a fellow named Tom Caton collaborated on a series called um, the Watchman waketh but in vain. Um, name. That was uh, yeah. It it, it was uh, published in the Midlothian Mirror by Penn Jones Jr. over a period of time, and that was uh, the a publication that focused on sort of the big picture, especially messages to Air Force One uh, carrying the new newly uh, 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 installed President LBJ back to Washington. So within minutes of the assassination, uh, the death of the president. So we we looked at things like that. So it was a whole range of things I got involved in. I individual investigation, work in the archives, and mostly collaborating with other people doing the work. Now, when, you, when was that photo released of LBJ where he's being sworn in with Jackie Ken Kennedy standing right beside him? Did, were those released early, like when you were doing your work, or did those come later? 
Oh, no, I believe that was uh, very released uh, almost immediately because the issue was to show that the United States had leadership in place. That was fairly key. I don't know. There may be very versions of it, but certainly the fact that LBJ was the new president was widely publicized at the time. I've never thought LBJ was behind it, but I would say that picture is so suspicious. I mean, it's 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 just really bad manners, to be 100 percent honest with you. I think there's even a link that he has to some guy who's also on Air Force One. Well, there's a ton of stuff out there I've read. I don't buy the LBJ was behind it, but I, I, I got to admit there's all kinds of suspicious stuff thrown out there. I've never believed that, uh, but I've even had uh, people uh, who knew officers in the um, Dallas Police Department who believed that. And actually, uh, I believe Jesse Curry, the chief of police, said that according to... Uh, policeman I encountered, uh, that that word was around. I, I don't happen to buy it, but. Yeah. I believe more military industrial complex. Like I would, I've learned a lot about Hoover to say like, I mean, you don't want that guy in really in charge of anything if you want it kind of done properly and more ethically. Right. Uh, but where do you, when you, if you believe conspiracy, I mean, where do you believe the conspiracy lies? Like, do you point blame towards anyone, certain agencies or certain mafia figures? Well, first of all, mafia collaboration with CIA on, for instance, anti-Castro stuff is even in this case uh, with Ruby acting as a bag man uh, for uh, mafia money going or uh, going into um, uh, the anti-Castro stuff. So, I, but I don't believe that was they were prime movers. I believe there could have been involvement on a contractual basis. I believe it had to be somebody. Uh, fairly high power within an intelligence community had to play a, a key role, CIA, um, DIA. But again, part of that whole community is out of our view. They're not things even today we know much about. And back then we didn't know anything. So, but I, I assume that that's, you're dealing with a, a group of powerful people. And I think the uh, the reason they were able to rationalize this to themselves was that they believed, based on inside knowledge, that Kennedy was a traitor. Um, I, yeah, racism, all these other things you hear theories of. But the one thing that we know is that JFK carried on what he believed was a secure and secret communication with uh, Khrushchev around the... Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and a variety of other things, and they cut a whole bunch of deals person to person. We do know that there's considerable evidence that um, JFK told, uh, uh, basically told Khrushchev that he had to deal with some pretty right-wing uh, generals, and that Khrushchev revealed that, that he was having, he had the same problem, that there were people that wanted, for instance, first strike. And we know now that the taping system in JFK's office taped comments from some generals that took place when JFK was not in the room. What happened is he stormed out of a meeting, but the tape was still rolling. The generals didn't know it was being taped and it caught a lot of by, you know, conversation back and forth, but very clear that Curtis LeMay uh, and others uh, believe strongly that we should do first strike when we had the advantage. 
it's not to look soft on communism, right? That's the whole angle. Oh, exactly. Well, you could not be elected president. You know, it says you wouldn't have a prayer if you were seen as soft on communism. Um, not at all. Uh, that was a keystone. And uh, it was critical that that be the outward stance. What I think Kennedy was shocked by was the degree of machinations behind the scenes and also the degree to which people actually believed that we needed to do a first nuclear strike because we were ahead of them and we'd only lose millions of people, they would lose more. But the insanity of that, got to remember that uh, some of the group that you have, that have to be suspect, um, we're well aware we'd been committing war crimes. World War II, uh, we know from McNamara's uh, book, The Fog of War, that face to face, he he confronted Curtis LeMay about the firebombing of Japanese cities, which were mainly in that day made out of wood. And so you you firebomb uh, a major city and there's nothing left. You, you destroy 90% of the city. And these are obviously war crimes. And LeMay actually, according to McNamara, said point blank, these are war crimes. If we lose the war, we'll be tried by some international body. Uh, but he actually himself labeled them as war crimes. Well, if you have that sort of lack of morality and win at any costs, uh, someone like Kennedy is a traitor. Anybody that hesitates is a traitor. Got to remember, the United States in those days would take on and wipe out leaders who were neutral. Neutral was considered dangerous. It's not just you had to be anti-communist. Those who were anywhere in the middle were at risk. So that was the that was the scenario going on. And if you if you understand U.S. policy at the time, you can see how if someone knew about the communications with uh, Khrushchev, that alone would be the kind of grounds that would enable someone who's committed to the United States to say this man is a traitor needs to be removed. Do you think the public kind of uh, so? I mean, a lot of people didn't agree with the official narrative, especially when Jack Ruby shoots Oswald. I think everybody had questions. But when it came to the transparency within the government, even with yourself doing independent research and working with Vincent Salandria or, or Harold Weisberg, I mean, there's a lot of info I know because I've gotten the, the end notes of like the 60 years worth of documentation that I can see all at once. But a lot of this took time to come out as well, too, and took a lot of hard work and research to be able to find. But that communist threat was a big thing instilled into a lot of the general public. And I think eventually that goalpost kind of moved where the government could kind of use it and just label anything really communist. I think I was talking to Greg Polgrain, and he was talking about someone about Indonesia, and they said communism in Indonesia. And he goes, wait, there's two types of communism? Yeah, and you kind of look like they're just broad brushing the word communist on anything. And then you get to like programs like COINTELPRO where they were attacking you know certain individual groups, calling them either domestic terrorists or communists. Communists. And it's like, define that word. It's like national security. Please define that word so I know what you're keeping from me document-wise. But how hard was that for you doing research and trying to understand like this whole communist idea and this whole thing of, I mean, you're looking through documents. There's no reason not to question the government. I mean, what they say, they're there to protect you, right? And then you're kind of looking through stuff. You're like, oh no, everybody's kind of doing bad stuff. Well, uh, two Quick vignettes to underline that, uh, and I should say, when I was a kid, I'm 
78 years old. When I was a kid, the Army McCarthy hearings were happening. And uh, I, I have some memories of that era. But um, the first of all, the documents on me, I did a Freedom of Information request. There's a bunch of stuff they wouldn't release. But finally, they released several pages. These pages are totally blanked out. There's not even a page number. I know that one was a communication from Defense Intelligence Agency, but I have no idea what it was about or why, since at the time this thing uh, would have happened, I, I had never served in the military. I could not have been involved in anything except the JFK case. But the only thing that appears on each page is Gary Schoner, and then in one other spot, there's author Gary Schoner, and that's all that you can see. So I got this page. It's totally blanked out except my name. And that's all they would release. And the argument, uh, the uh, these, uh, rules under which they wouldn't release it said that releasing this would constitute a clear and present danger to the security of the United States. Now, hey, I, I was an undergraduate studying wildlife management who switched to psychology. I mean, clear and present danger to the United States of America? You got to be kidding. But my very first on-site investigation, I saved up my money so I could afford the gas money. I put on my only suit. I made sure my hair was cut. And I had a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And I traveled to Martinsburg, Pennsylvania. Little town, little bitty town, the middle of the state, to interview a woman named Mrs. L.E. Hoover. The reason I wanted to interview her, by the way, was that I, her brother had called the FBI shortly after the assassination and said that his sister had found a piece of paper with the name Rubenstein, Jack Ruby, and Lee Oswald, a number, silver slipper, uh, Ruby used to own a silver slipper club, but there's also one, as I was discovering, Las Vegas, that was key. Um, to find both names on a piece of paper prior to the killing of the president was mind-boggling. If you had both names on a piece of paper, you had conspiracy. So pretty hot stuff. The FBI's response to it, when she couldn't find the piece of paper, although she found a ton of other stuff that she had picked up, essentially trashed her. Um, when they didn't believe her, she asked to take a lie detector test, which they wouldn't give her. And it's the FBI's own version of how they handled her. It sounded like the hell they harassed her and certainly weren't interested in learning what she knew. That's their version. Their version, I read, I, I, I gasped as I read it. I thought, holy shit. So what happened was... Um, I wanted to know more about this. They they dismissed her because her son-in-law, with whom she had a long-standing tension, said she was unreliable. There's no description, and that's a term like communism works very well for the FBI if you're unreliable. It didn't say unreliable how or what. Give me an example of her unreliability. So in other words, my reading, and I gotta tell you how naive I was at the time, I was absolutely blown away by the FBI's version of how they dealt with Mrs. Hoover. And the fact there was no follow-up, there was no attempt 
she said she was looking around that she picked, she's a pack rat, picks up a whole lot of papers and lets her grandkids like play with them and stuff. So, uh, and I was later to benefit from that fact that she still had stuff. But anyway, so I drive out there. It's a summer day. I got my suit on. I, you know, I look pretty innocent as, you know, and I, I went up the door and I said I was a, a, a college student. I was a researcher and I was researching some stuff about the JFK assassination. And that she might not realize this, but the documents pertaining to her finding the piece of paper were actually in the 26 volumes. And um, her response through a screen door was, how do I know you're not a communist? Well, I'm pretty good on my feet, but my God, how do you prove you're not a communist? I mean, I thought, what, I got my, I, I. Sing the Pledge of Allegiance as fast as you can. I, well, exactly. I was stammered and I, I, I thought, I said, well, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have anything in my wallet. I could show you who I am. I got a driver's license and stuff. I'm thinking, come on, Gary, you've done all this stuff. You've spent all this gas money. You, you prep for this thing. You're standing here. But the woman you need to talk to across the, the, the you know, the, the the screen door, and you got to prove you're not a communist. My God! Well, I I did something smart in retrospect. What I said was, well, uh, you know, look, I I tell you, I'm not a communist, but I'm just. Could I check with you some things your son-in-law said about you? If they, if, if, if would you just in case they're really true? Well, she got interested. I said, well, I, yeah, I actually have. The interview with him from the National Archives, and I've even brought a copy for you. And she said, well, why didn't you come in? Well, she was a lovely person. Turned out once we got past the communist thing, she talked up a storm, uh, revealed to me that she had found a bunch of papers after the FBI had left, that she did feel intimidated, that she was totally shocked. She was a patriotic American, and she could not believe how the FBI, she said, I felt strongly they didn't want to know what I knew. They didn't care about the piece of paper that, and she said, I, I was just shocked at how I was, you know, how I was treated. I was not expecting it. So um, what happened was she found a bunch of other papers. So she sent them to her senator, Senator Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania. Hugh Scott later confirmed to me that he recalled quite well that she'd sent him a package of stuff he passed it on to the FBI. I said, well, <laughs> Senator Scott, would it interest you to know that there's no record of those materials in anything I can find in the National Archives or they're certainly not in the 26 volumes. It's just the case ended with, he said, no. He said, I, that's a shock. I sent them a whole packet of stuff she sent me. He said, unfortunately, I can't tell you much about it because I don't, I didn't know what this stuff was about. Um, well, However, Mrs. Hoover, our friendly pack rat, had a bunch of other stuff that she discovered after she sent the stuff to Scott. And by the way, this stuff was blown out of apparently uh, on a very windy day. Somebody was burning a bunch of letters and other stuff in a trash can. And it's it sounds like they were blown out of the trash can. Uh, and who whose trash was it? Well, she was separated from her husband, living in a in a room over a garage, which was not revealed in the FBI report, by the way. I almost didn't find her because it was a different address. 
her home was rented out to a Cuban family, that of Julio Cesar Fernandez Jr. Turns out connections to the Batista government and quite political. What's he doing in Martinsburg, Pennsylvania, where people had never even seen a Cuban person before? Well, he was teaching Spanish at the high school. Um, Mrs. Hoover revealed to me that because the family was Cuban, sort of people kept an eye on them. And what she found was that somebody had seen them throwing darts at a picture of Castro. And the day of the assassination, he did, which was a Friday, he did not show for work. And um, the kids did not show for school. And nobody in the family was seen outside the home for a week. Um, secondly, there's a group of Cubans that came late one night and um, hauled off some boxes of materials. Shortly afterwards, he basically quit his job. Now, if you think about the timing of this, that's middle of the school year. We're talking, remember, the assassination occurred late November. So you're talking about he left his job in the spring, um, not no explanation given. Also found out Mrs. Hoover in, introduced me to some townspeople and I discovered that one of the groups of Cubans that came um, was enough people, they had to stay in the, in the downtown little, very little bitty hotel. And the hotel lady was very nice and she dug up her sign-in book, you know, her, you know, thing where you sign your name stuff, discovered for the first time that the Cubans hadn't actually signed in. So she didn't know what their names were. They just stayed there for the night. So this whole thing got interesting. Now, what was it that was found? Now, so this is a political person heavy in the Cuban community, although we don't know the details since the FBI didn't investigate, other than they interviewed Fernandez, but certainly never discovered all the stuff that I was to learn from the townspeople. Well, the next thing that happened was that Mrs. Hoover produced some additional stuff that she had found, that she found in, a, in, a, in somewhere in her house that was still there. Because you got to remember, I'm now there some years after the assassination doing this. And by God, what she had was used uh, plane tickets and uh, the receipts and a receipt for a show at the Silver Slipper Club in Las Vegas. Now, Silver Slipper uh, got interesting because that was a place where money was laundered in some of the dealings between the CIA and uh, uh, and Howard Hughes. And that uh, Playboy and other groups that investigated the Howard Hughes stuff came up with Silver Slipper as a hot spot. But in any event, here's this high school Spanish teacher traveling to Vegas going to this club and that that's the same name I was was on the original piece of paper which Mrs. Hoover never found by the way she never found the paper with the two names but she had an explanation for why she was so interested and what happened to the thing is it was when Ruby shot Oswald on TV the name Ruby well the reason she kept the piece of paper was she and her husband were separated and she thought he was going out with other women. And she picked it up and kept it because of the name Ruby. 
at the time, obviously, the name Oswald or these other names meant nothing. But Ruby was a woman's name, she thought. But when Ruby shot Oswald, she said, oh, my God. And that's when she remembered the piece of paper. So uh, the story held together made sense. Any kind of a, I mean, I'm not an investigator. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I, I'm wildlife management turned psychologist. I mean, that that was it. So, uh, of course, that story doesn't have an ending. I still believe that uh, that's an incredibly important piece of, of information. And um, I did turn it over to the uh, select committee in the late 70s. And uh, Gaetan Fonzi said he did run uh, Julio Cesar Fernandez down uh, in New York. And, and, but, you know, it wasn't. And he said he, did, he didn't didn't gain anything from him. But I'm thinking, OK. This is one of those things that require real intelligence investigation. Who we know something about who the guy is, but what was going on with those connections and so forth. And I don't know why that House committee didn't get further on it, but that's a good example of something that for which there there has to be more information. Uh, but obviously, anybody that knew about both men's names in the same breath prior to the killing. Uh, it would be important. Do you think that they tried, if there was a connection between Oswald and Jack Ruby, do you think that they, that they tried to erase that, any documentation on that ever? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it was very important to the story that Ruby was kind of himself a lone nut. And that's one of the reasons they didn't want to talk to Nancy Purr and Rich about uh, 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 Ruby's connection with the, the CIA mob stuff going on with regard to Cuba, even that kind of a link was not something the uh, commission wanted to know about. We know more about the fact that Jack Ruby's mother had a, a, a delusion that she had a wishbone stuck in her throat than we Wait, do about. What? I know they had dental records of Jack Ruby's mother's dental records in there, but I didn't know she had a wishbone stuck in her throat. Well, she believed she did. It was a delusion. Oh. All right, that makes more sense. I'm like, Jesus, go to a surgeon. But you got, you know, got interviews with Oswald's babysitters. You got, you know, we we know Oswald's measured IQ when he was 17. You know, we. <laughs> it's a lot of unnecessary thoroughness, like in stuff where it makes it really compile a lot of evidence. But evidence, if you look at it, that doesn't mean anything. It's good if you're looking from a distance. Well, and they took testimony from and published, I think, 110 pages of the writing of Revilo Pendleton Oliver. And by the way, Revilo is Oliver spelled backwards, so his problems may have started early in life. But he was a classics professor at University of Southern Illinois, wrote a series of articles called Marksmanship in Dallas, spelled M-A-R-X. Um, and um, he, blamed the, he blamed the Russian community. I believe I just did an episode recently about um, him and another person at that same university, one that was fired for trying to educate kids on sex on campus. And then there was a right wing extremist one that had a view that he wrote about the JFK assassination, but he was blaming the Russians for it. Oh, well, no, he, it's, it's, he had three theories. Uh, Kennedy was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kennedy was the highest ranking communist in the American government. That was his firm belief. So the question is, why did the commies kill him? And he had three theories. One was that he hadn't had gun, gotten uh, gun legislation through yet. 
which had a secret purpose of disarming Americans so as to make them easy targets for the Balubas and associated savages of the United Nations who were going to invade this country and butcher its white inhabitants. That was one. Two was that it was a rift in the upper echelons of the Communist Party that was an intra dispute in the Communist Party, and one branch of the Communist Party killed off Kennedy's branch. The third theory, which he said is comforting, but unfortunately is no evidence that would support it, was that Kennedy was planning to turn American. <laughs> was planning Those are his American. three theories. That's all. That's in the Warren Commission's work. These are these were things that they they published his articles, and they basically heard testimony from him. You mentioned about the FBI kind of dropping the story on Ellie Hoover. Do you think it was because they found out that someone just one little mention, they just found one thing that they could completely discredit everything she says, which is the fact that she might be like a pack rat or she's a little bit crazy? There's a lot of that. Like even with the guy who said that he was in Traficante's prison and or not Traficante's prison, Castro's prison with Traficante and saw Ruby visit. And he was claiming that that was the same guy that killed oswald and nobody picked it up because they called him a delusional reporter but then the the later the later committee found out that he actually was right Hubie, uh ruby did views visit havana at that time when he said he did but he said it was just looking around and the warren commission just, or anybody really didn't decide to dig deeper into that i don't know i don't know what people uh what the motivations were because the question is the altoona office of the fbi is it that office that dropped the ball? What was the word from Hoover? We only know some of that. We do know that once, however, uh, Hoover weighed in on the lone assassin thing, that anything that contradicted it uh, was not followed. Even conspiracy, even communist conspiracy was not on the table at that point. So Hoover's thing that also was the lone assassin, once that was in place, uh, everything else got shoved aside. The Siebert and O'Neill report on the autopsy, but I don't really know. I, I I do believe, however, that Mrs. Hoover was right that they were not investigating the assassination. Besides the communist interaction that you had with her, I mean, did she seem unstable at all? Did she seem crazy, or did she just seem like someone that was, you know, just hoarding a lot of stuff? My my diagnosis was an ordinary. American housewife in the middle of Pennsylvania in a small town. She was as normal as you could be. Um, the Even the being the pack rat or picking up things and keeping them, that's scarcely psychopathology. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons I have this background is so you can't see what my office space looks like here. <laughs> because I, and maybe, of course, I'm a pack rat myself, so <laughs> maybe... A, I didn't think she was any crazier than me, but no, I, I don't think, uh, look, I'm a clinical psychologist and looking back, I would tell you, this is a normal uh, average woman. Uh, and I was struck by the fact that I viewed the documents as saying exactly what she said. In other words, I viewed the FBI's description, not knowing what the word unreliable means, except I got to tell you, there is no description in there about anything they found suspicious about her. The only reality was she couldn't find the piece of paper at that moment. 
just the fact that within a week she found more stuff. They didn't say, if you find it, call us. They didn't say in their own report. They don't make themselves look good even. There's no window dressing. I mean, like, if I were them, regardless of my goal, I would have thanked her for meeting with us. I would have uh, said, please, if you find anything, if you have any questions, you remember anything, please contact us immediately. Here's my card. I would have been very uh, supportive, encouraging. Why, why, why put the woman through that? and not have any indication that you want the information. I would tell you her brother was shocked. Everybody she talked to about it was shocked about the FBI's behavior. I think it was just to say that they did go there and talk to her. Like there was a lot of um, testimony and witnesses that were in Dealey Plaza, whether they got a full report, but a lot of it could have been, maybe they thought the FBI was going to come in and do a more detailed, you know, reporting or interrogation of some of these witnesses and get the, a deeper story of it. But a lot of it is so brief where it was like, how come nobody went thorough in this and asked these people that? So, I mean, there's like three statements from Roger Craig and Worrell that saw a Rambler and a person that looked like Oswald getting a Rambler. That was not pursued at all. You just have the little statement thing and then it's off. I mean, Roger Craig was able to speak on news about it, but then even then they labeled them crazy, which doesn't fit as well either. I mean, it just seems like a lot of this was just to check the box that they showed up and talked to this person. Now, what the discussion was being had would not look good because they printed it as, I mean, exactly what they did. And you're like, this isn't even an investigation. This just looks like they had some tea and some cake. And next thing you know, they left. Well, right. Again, uh, just as we know very little about Oswald in the summer before the assassination in New Orleans, we, it, it, the interesting thing is how little was done in each area. That the un, Basically, early in the game, the word went out, this was a lone assassin. And let's just talk about that for a second. Uh, our The series we did, uh, Vince and I and Tom Caton did, the Watchman Waketh But in Vain, one of the keystone pieces we presented in there was that in T.H. White's Making of a President, 1964, he basically talked about the conversations on the, pre on the Air Force One as it headed back to Washington and said that they got a call. Now, the, the the plane landed at 4.58 Dallas time in, in D.C. So we know this is essentially before 5 o'clock Dallas time. Now, remember, Oswald was arrested, taken in uh, in the early afternoon. The link between him and the gun was at best found at 2 a.m. the next morning. When Oswald was asked by a reporter as they hustled him room to room, did you kill a uh, you kill the president. He said, I, I've been asked about the killing of a police officer and, and appeared quite, quite surprised. And, you know, we've got pretty good record of the fact that at that time, he was not really a, a, a much of a suspect, but you know that somebody communicated with Air Force One and according to T.H. White, uh, they were told that, and this is who's being told is not only the new president and his aides, but the Secret Service are being told, no problem, there's a lone, there's an assassin, and we've apprehended him, and um, this is not part of a bigger conspiracy, because initially, of course, the fear was LBJ had been in the motorcade, it could have been a 
a conspiracy to knock off all leaders or something. Uh, but that message, Oswald the Lone Assassin, that came out to them. The question is from whom? And we attempted to find that out. Pierre Salinger offered access to his tape of all those conversations uh, on the plane. You'll see he has a copy of the tape of that. And um, we went to the National Archives and the tape was gone from his personal uh, effects. So we didn't have the tape to know exactly who sent the message, but um, it appears uh, the situation of the room of the White House was in constant communication with the plane. Uh, Major Harold R. Patterson, codenamed Stranger, was the sender of messages. And both T.H. Uh, White and um, I think Manchester also confirmed that. We also know that the Joint Chiefs of Staff happened to be meeting on the Sunday when Ruby killed Oswald. And um, they kept meeting then, once the assassination occurred. Again, we don't know, but CIA or Joint Chiefs, it had to be somebody like that to communicate with the plane, period. And that was the first thing. By the way, at that time, we have Voice of America broadcasts that are talking assassins in the plural and talking about people running up the grassy knoll. So even some of our international broadcasts are not reflecting the lone assassin. And when... Um, uh, Dean Rusk said there was no conspiracy a week later. He got confronted by Gerald Ford, who said it's too early to tell. So how the hell did this thing go out? Well, I was interested in trying to talk to Hubert Humphrey and other leaders to see if what they were told and when they were told it, where did that, where did that command come? Now, a second piece about this lone assassin message. At the time of the assassination, most of the cabinet was in a single plane midway across the Pacific heading to Japan. They had to turn around and they were did have a you know protecting aircraft next to them, but they were in a single plane. They turned around to head back to the United States because now you know the whole country was in, in danger. And uh Dean Rusk um the ranking cabinet officer in the plane went to the safe out of which you get the code book so you can now talk uh, in, 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 in code uh, back to Washington because they've been informed of the, of the assassination and the code book was gone. I've heard so, that from Brandy Benson. He said the flight, uh, that whatever the code book was missing. Yeah, that which meant that this whole thing that you've seen in the movies where and atomic disasters and things, they whip out the code book. It, it, there is such a thing, but it was gone on a, from that safe. And what that meant was that they, they had to talk open channel. That means that even ham radio operators could possibly have intercepted. So it was possible for even people less than intelligence agency types to actually listen in to what was going back and forth with the leadership of the country. Think about it. You've got the newly installed president in one plane. You've got most of the cabinet in the other. You've got the United States government up in two planes and having to communicate pretty openly. And the question is, it's very relevant of what was said by whom at what time. 
Do you think they had open community? I mean, they obviously knew that their channel was open. Do you think they probably shared as many messages as they would if it was a private link like they would have had if the logs weren't taken? have no idea. No idea if they were even cognizant of that. When people are in that kind of an emergency situation, uh, adrenaline kicks in, fear kicks in. And that doesn't mean that you get more careful. It means that you start moving quickly and you move precipitously and you make mistakes. So yeah, I don't have any idea, but the cabinet didn't have an option. Otherwise they were out of touch with what was going on in the United States. So yeah, that was one of the reasons we made that a key part of, of that series because that to us spoke volumes about the fact that there had to be a high level conspiracy. And secondly, that those people had to decide what was next, uh, who needed to die. By the way, uh, as you're probably aware, the the bombers were in the air. It was national emergency. It was, uh, and you, you basically had uh, the possibility of a nuclear war starting. Yeah. That's why, I, that's why I think it was the reason I had to be a lone nut was because of the fear of starting a World War III. Because everybody's going to either want you to go into Cuba or want you to go after Russia or whoever. They're going to want someone to pay. Well, as we know, uh, uh, Earl Warren was strong-armed into it by a clever uh, – you know, but I think the bottom line was the thing that probably worked in the end with him was a fear of of, of a, a attack on Castro or the Soviets or somebody else, yeah. Because LBJ even said that he thinks there was more about Castro that was involved with Oswald. Yes, yes, and I, I think the bottom line was that this would have could have been a rationale for an attack of Cuba, could have been used in any kind of way, and I think if the lone assassin thing wasn't selling, there was a potential for some real disaster. Can I ask a personal question or your personal feelings on the archives? Do you trust those? I've asked a couple of researchers this question because there's a lot of stuff that ends up going missing out of the archives where it's an, it's important that we have people like Harold Weisberg and others that literally keep a log of stuff. Like I look at the Internet Archive and come across Weisberg's collection, collection or Malcolm Blunt's um, archive that he has. And it's so much information that I necessarily don't really find a whole lot on the National Archives, either because there is so much or there's just certain links that I click and it says either bad gateway or error. Well, a couple of quick answers to that question. First of all, the first document I saw at the National Archives was a uh, document that contains all known photos of Lee Oswald, which I wanted for obvious reasons because we had these double Oswald incidents and stuff including people that don't really look like Oswald to me, like Larry Crayford. One of the Oswald-Ruby connections thing was Larry Crayford, clearly. Uh, Larry Crayford doesn't look like Oswald, but I wanted to know if somebody identified Oswald, which photo of Oswald was closest to the face they're remembering. So I thought I, I would like to go out when I interviewed people with photos of Oswald, because he looks different in different photos, quite a bit different. So that's gone. That was gone right off the bat. I also found there were things that weren't in the archives, like Jackie Kennedy's testimony that was excised out of her testimony. Her testimony, all we see in her testimony is references to wounds deleted. In in in, That was one of the things I nailed the New York Times for. When they published the book, The Witnesses, they didn't comment on the fact that here you have Jackie Kennedy's testimony with a section removed 
uh, and that that supposedly was in the National Archives, not there. Uh, I will also tell you that once you did a bunch of research, you got labeled some fashion because when I went to the archives, only Marion Johnson would deal with me. I don't know if Mr. Johnson's still alive, but he was a FBI's guy in the archives. And so the critics didn't get just any staff member. And where this came to, came to uh, a head was very interesting. I showed up for the, at the archives one time and Marion Johnson was out ill. Uh, and so they said that I'd have to wait. I said, well, I assume you have other staff. I've got a list of documents I want. And they stalled me and stalled me. And then a very sick Marion Johnson about an hour later. And once I told them I could stay for a week, a very sick Marion Johnson showed up for work, obviously should not have been there. I wouldn't shake his hand. I mean, the guy looked contagious as hell. He was visibly ill and barely, barely standing. And he he's the one that filled my order. Well, I was going through this stuff and there was CD 474. I said, holy shit. I had a pretty good memory in those days and I knew the numbers of classified documents. And there it was stuck behind another file, but sort of stuck to it. I go, holy shit. Um, I couldn't believe it at first. I got paranoid and I started looking around thinking, holy shit, this is, I, this is a classified document. And I, it was about Vladimir Boris Karapatsnitsky, which I can tell you about, which was another one of those key things. We Nobody knew who he was. So all we knew was his name. But why was this classified document there? Because many classified documents don't have names on them, but some do have names. And so there were names that we were always looking for. At least I was always looking for. Anyway, and I looked at it and it was this, it was a whole bunch of important stuff. I thought, holy shit. When I take this stuff to be Xerox, I'm sure Marion Johnson looks through what it is we're getting copied. I thought, there's no way I'll get out of here with this. So I, I went around and found an office that was empty with a copier. And, and I thought, if somebody comes in here, I'm going to have to have some song and dance. But I made copies of the whole file. and But I, I, I was anxious until I got out of the archives. And the, the, I mean, it's a, it's a separate story, but it's a mind-boggling file. <laughs> and uh, so I knew there are some things that are classified that are still there, but I don't trust the archives. We, I, I've already mentioned two things that disappeared we know are gone. Uh, so unless you literally open a file, you don't know if anything's been taken out of it, if that's the actual file. Plus the fact, I really believe there's a ton of stuff that's never going to be given the commission. For instance, Mrs. Hoover's stuff, which is nowhere in the archives. All we have is that original FBI interview, although we know, I trust Senator Scott really did send that stuff to the FBI. We know they didn't send it on. So the idea that the story and the truth is in there is silly, to be very honest. I mean, the likelihood, but are there clues? Yes, because this thing was big enough and sloppy in certain ways, and the agencies were at to nail each other. FBI and Secret Service compete, and there are times where one intelligence service undermined another. So one of the reasons we have a bunch of stuff is that 
Second thing was the first set of files I went for for Hal Weisberg, which were brilliant to send me looking for, by the way, I would never have thought to do this. He was interested in the general administrative files, all of the memos and things. Well, in there, we discovered that a number of the junior attorneys had raised a fuss about all kinds of stuff, had suspicions and concerns, and we only knew about that because of this great mishmash of documents that nobody went through to classify. But so, you know, you know, an example of a type of thing was that we, we didn't learn till Ford's book, Portrait of the Assassin, about the fact that the commission had heard in a secret meeting with Wagoner Carr, the attorney general of Texas, Henry Wade, the DA of Dallas, the rumors about Oswald's connection with the intelligence, including allegations that he had a, a, a FBI informant number S-79, uh, um, uh, or that he had a CIA number 11, I think 110669, uh, of some kind of a CIA operative number. This stuff occurred in a meeting, which of course is not published. Uh, we didn't, uh, the chapter in Ford's book is entitled, The Commission Gets His First Shot. And as I wrote in the Star Tribune, I think they got their first shock when they read his book and found that he revealed this meeting that nobody knew about prior to that. But there, there's a ton of stuff that is in there that is useful if you follow up. Another one is the Miami plot uh, where they tape recorded uh, guys talking about the killing and a meeting with them afterwards talking about how well it went. Uh, this would be very similar to the Howard Hughes or, um, or, or uh, not Howard Hughes. Um, um, the guy the, who's um, in Castro's a, a, Jay Hunt. Oh, Hunt. Hunt. Test, yeah, about a, a team from Miami going there. And they talked about the killing of the three girls in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the worst racial crimes of the century where they blown up a dynamite coming out of uh, Sunday school. Um, and they mentioned J.A. Miltier is the guy who did it. And one of the points I noted was early in the game that the car scene cruising behind the um, the depository with gold, uh, with uh, black and white license plates were Rhode Island, Virginia, and Tennessee. Miltier's from Tennessee. These all had Goldwater bumper stickers on, which is one of the things people remembered. But Black and white license plate, Rhode Island, Virginia, Tennessee, none of them close to Dallas, Texas, obviously. And three cars cruising around all with license plates, presumably from one of those states. So there were things like this that you could find, but what you didn't find is any investigation. And back to your point and question, there wasn't really an investigation, except to the degree of needing to find out whether something needed to be closed off or covered over. I'm sure since you're in the JFK community, you probably are getting sick of the term smoking gun uh, or document a smoking gun. I don't think there is going to be one in any of the stuff they have released, but I think there's enough evidence and where it does kind of create what I would say an unhealthy obsession or a little bit of madness in a sense is the amount of stuff that they release and they do release some really important 
stuff, but I have no idea what to do with. I've mentioned this document multiple times, but it's in the 22 release about a person receiving a polio inoculation because she overheard a bunch of people in the Central Intelligence Agency talk about Kennedy needs to be dealt with within the next five years. And as she receives the shot, the guy says this will make you forget everything. That's in the 22 release. And I have no idea what to do with that, where it just creates either paranoia, it makes you kind of spatter it out like I just did in a podcast, make you sound a little bit nuts, where it's like, there's not a, I mean, there's a lot you can look at in the documents that'll show you a lot about like you the more about the time period and things of that sort, a lot of what's going on, but there's no way to be able to find like this. This is 100% the correct path. It's a million different paths and trying to, if you go down this individual path, you end up either having your own theory and then not communicating properly because you're trying to like usually shout it out in a forum and it doesn't necessarily go well where now like you have people like – I mean I have to ask you about Harold Weisberg. I mean did he seem – all the work that he was coming across, all the letters that he was writing, all the Freedom of Information Act stuff, everything that he was publishing and putting up on the internet that I've been able to find as well too document-wise. Was he handling it well? Did he ever seem like he was slipping at times? I mean I've been over 64,000 things of documents in them as the past year, and I'm telling you I'm cracking. <laughs> Well, first of all, I'd like to validate absolutely everything you just said. I'm, and I felt the same way when I was probably your age uh, when this thing started, and I still feel the same way. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, I I lost touch with Harold in more, you know, later years, uh, partly because I sort of retired from the case for, for after the uh, House Committee. And... Um, but uh, Harold was uh, uh, was able to handle tons of facts and stay stay tracking, and he was investigating a number of different areas. Uh, now I I always found Harold uh, pretty focused and on the beam. Uh, tell you the truth, uh, I um, I thought he was uh, very focused. But what he was endlessly discovering and writing multiple books about was all the different pieces, as you say, uh, and it, it harder to get at what the answer was. I used to feel Vince Salandria was ill the crack because he was, Vince was one of the first people to look at the big picture and talk about CIA and stuff. And Harold was far more into all of the, the details than the actual big picture of what he thought happened. Uh, he was more focused on what happened and who was connected to what and so forth. But, uh, I don't know that we ever talked about the big picture uh, or a central theory about who did what. Now, when it comes to Vincent Salandri, I don't know if you saw Max Good's documentary, The Assassination of Miss Payne. Um, Vincent's in it. I, I was hoping you could explain to me a little bit about Vincent Salandri, like working with him and being a friend of his as well, too. I mean, I'm a younger generation who doesn't really know the guy, and my first experience was watching him in that documentary where I've on like Kennedy topic aside, I've looked into a lot of the government past projects, operations and things of that sort to say that like what he was saying, I was like, I get it. But if you're like the general public and you see this guy explain the way he's explaining like this big, you know, connection, deep state type talk, that's a really bad thing for a first impression. And I, I talked to Max about it where I was like, I have to know more about Vincent Salandria. And I sadly, I won't have the chance to be able to speak with him. 
But at the same time, the public doesn't really know who Vincent Slangier is, at least the general public, maybe not specific researchers and things. And I'm hoping you could give me some clarification if he was, you know, what got him on the path really that got him to that deep state talk or even to say who was at the top, like the bigger picture type deal. I mean, that's a certain direction that you either come across some amount of documents that start leading you to, oh, this is this. This is cover up. This is stuff that only can go from the government or areas and entities of that sort? Well, uh, what you have with someone like Vince, who was involved very, very early in the game, is someone who believed that there was a kind of big answer without all the specifics. Uh, and yeah, I think that that doesn't fly well with the public. I agree. And uh, the reason Mark Lane was so convincing back in the fall of 1964 in Ithaca was he had tons and tons of detail and documentation. Uh, and it wasn't that he, he, he had no theory about who did it, but he had theories about FBI covering up and a whole lot of pieces that were easier to get your hands on or get your head around. Um, and uh, Vince, um, Vince though, uh, uh, had a habit of spotting some pieces that really, you know, he was one of the first people to point out the Seaburton O'Neill report. And he's one of the people that that got people like Ed Epstein and others moving on some of those things. Um, but he really was never into all the detail. And um, uh, so one of the reasons he really liked Jim Garrison and Garrison liked him was that Garrison liked to talk about the big picture and and the ultimate stuff uh, and not always good on the details. And um, uh, now Vince, um, Vince is a very nice guy and somebody I have very fond memories of sitting in his kitchen and uh, and talking and and um, uh, lots of interesting experiences, but he wasn't into all those details. He would be, he would focus on certain areas like the message to Air Force One or uh, he loved Ray Marcus, who whose main focus was on uh, single bullet theory and especially the curb hit and so forth. Uh, and Vince was conversing in all that he was always bugging Arlen Specter, and Specter never agreed to a debate. You know, they used to have Vince up on stage, and they'd have an empty chair with Specter's name on it up on stage too. Uh, but yeah, he wasn't. A, he's the almost opposite of Weisberg, and in fact, uh, they didn't particularly get along, um, uh, and, and never worked together, with one exception. Uh, since I was good friends with both. Uh, wasn't a problem because they weren't working together or fighting each other. But um, uh, Vince was very key. I, I discovered what I thought was some sabotage in Garrison's office from a distance. And it's a long story, but um, he had a guy working for him, uh, William Wood, AKA Bill Boxley, who was supposedly a former CIA guy, although they later found that there were college students that claimed he tried to recruit them to CIA after he supposedly left the agency. And um, I 
basically, to make a long story short, I discovered some fairly major discrepancies that seemed to come from him or, or be around him. I raised a, a serious concern about this. Weisberg went through the stuff with me. He said, you're right. You know, we got a real problem. But he said, you know, Garrison wouldn't listen to me in a million years. Um, so Garrison kind of tolerated how Weisberg, but they're totally opposite personalities. And he said, Vince is the only one who could get to him. So I called Vince and explained this stuff. And Vince said, holy shit. <laughs> and he went down to New Orleans that weekend and had a long chat with, and went for the files I told him to look for. And he, he called me and said, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a God awful mess. And uh, he, he talked to, Garrison into asking Boxley to come in to answer some questions and Boxley didn't show. And then a whole big thing erupted in the critic community. Uh, Penn Jones Jr. wrote a column about East Coast critics undermining Boxley, who he loved and thought was great. And Mary Farrell thought that Boxley was simply an alcoholic and it had a slip. And But this was an example of... Um, where Vince was particularly instrumental was nobody else would have gotten Garrison to realize that, that he had some real trouble in the office. It's interesting to me to hear your explanation on some of these guys. Cause like I said, these are names that get mentioned where that I come across and I don't have the opportunity to be able to speak with any of them uh, to be able to form my own perspective. Like I like talking to people and forming my perspective about them through, can I trust them? Well, he was a good guy. I talked to him and didn't seem like he was, you know, BSing me at all. So it makes a lot of sense. And looking through Weisberg's archive, you don't know how many documents I've seen that he's requested for. Or he's got stored where I'm like, God, I have to know about him. I have to know more about Vincent Slandria. I haven't even used Garrison at all as an example for any conspiracy talk in the case. I think that's well documented. If you just look at it, there's a lot of things you can prove without them, but they're such polarizing figures in the communities, whether it's the Warren Commission side saying you can't trust them. I was like, well, everyone's got their favorite. Even some people recommend Mary Farrell site. I don't really, uh, when I'm looking for a RIF number or something, you get five free searches, then you have to sign up for a membership. And I'm like, does anybody care? Like it's the public's information. You might as well just make a lot of this stuff free. If you have it logged, it's important for at least the discussion to be had. But there's even files on there that you type in the RIF number, you click it. You see, let's say the HSCA, I had uh, David Montague on here. You see something about a LHO Clinton incident, which is his job at a mental institution or trying to interview for a job there. You click it, error, no documents found. It's like, where is that? Can I see that at any time? Why are you keeping that? Well, and Oswald himself is such a fascinating character. He can be connected with so many different things that there are thousands of pathways you can go down. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that when Mark Lane was first in New Orleans, he actually came here shortly afterwards. And I'll never forget, he said, he's got him. And Mark was very sold on the thing. But interestingly enough, um, and I reflected that in my Ivory Tower article about that. Uh, and Mark hung out off and on in New Orleans for years. In fact, he was the only person in the office who knew me personally. So he was supposed to be there when I met with Jim Garrison because I eventually had, had to go down there to take him some stuff. And um, Mark showed up like near the end of the meeting looking like he'd been at an all-night party and 
wearing something that appeared to be like pajamas. It was, it was really a shame. I mean, I thought, oh shit, you know, he's into the scene down here. But um, and Vince, who's an attorney, and unlike, see, Harold was working in this case full time, you know, uh, and uh, Vince was a practicing attorney and also attorney for the uh, the uh, Philadelphia School District. He was the head attorney for the school district. He used to teach, actually was a teacher before becoming a lawyer. And um, so there were two different worlds. Uh, Harold was barely scraping by financially and um, uh, Vince was, you know, not wealthy, but he was comfortable. Um, and what was interesting though is that Vince didn't see the obvious huge flaw in Garrison's case. And I still can't, get over the fact that people missed the obvious because I'm not a friggin' attorney, but for the case to be brought successfully, you have to link the discussions or meetings or connections in New Orleans with the actual assassination. It can't just be taught, it has to be linked. Well, the, the Oswald link, I believe Oswald was a patsy. So that, that that would be all very consistent with him being a patsy. But the link that was posited in the Clay Shaw case, which they had to prove, was something that nobody in the critic community believes. And that was that Oswald carried a weapon in that morning. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, and Shaw's attorneys fairly early in the game pointed that out, that you could call any critic of the Warren case. Nobody believes that. For the whole variety of reasons, the length of the weapon, you know, the whole thing that uh, uh, curtain rods, was, yeah, the curtain rods that, but the you know the shortest piece of the rifle, the stock, is too long to be carried the way it was carried. That's under the armpit and the hand. I mean, there's some fundamental problems with that. And if that's the link, if that link is necessary, that's the problem. Can you prove? That link, if you can't prove the link, you don't have a case. You have a, a basis for investigation, but you've got to link it to the actual killing of the president. And that means you have to have Oswald doing something to kill the president. And, I, you know, I, I, that was a problem from the very beginning that a lot of people overlooked. But I thought that the lawyers, you know, come on, Mark, come on, Vince, you got to know when you know what the charge is and how it works. Even I know that that's a huge weak spot in the case. And all you need is one weak spot. And that's a glaring one. Uh, he never, you know, I really, I, I, I don't believe the jury believed. Now, I, I haven't, I, I don't know if the jurors were interviewed. I don't know what's was done uh, post hoc. Sometimes very interesting to interview jurors. I do quite a bit of forensic work, by the way, but on, things like professional malpractice and stuff. But it's often interesting to hear what the juries thought was pervasive, you know, pers persuasive. But anyway, I, it was uh, unfortunate because, and Vince, uh, I'll tell you how central Vince got to be though. It was, I think it was, it was New Year's Day or Christmas morning before the, uh, the year just before the Shaw trial. So months before the Shaw, Shaw trial, and I was at Vince's place, and he got a call from Mu Chambra, who was preparing the cross-examination of Lieutenant Colonel Fink, pretty key, and needed help. 
they were trying to call Vincent to help them prepare. And Vince says, well, you guys aren't set to do this. He said, no. He said, Jim was so convinced that Shaw was going to be killed by the CIA before the trial that we haven't been preparing. So I was just there during the conversation. I kind of thought, holy shit. I wonder what's going to happen. You, This is a complicated case. You can't prepare these things. And Fink is terribly important witness. Um, again, um, what I got to see was the sort of the mishmash. And unfortunately, as much as I like and admire Vince, um, I agree with you, the message told that way doesn't come across well to the public. And secondly, I think that the, the not paying attention to details can be a problem. It's just there's like obviously in a film you can't incorporate two and a half hours of a full discussion that you might have had with the guy. But there's just like certain things where I'm like, oh, there needs to be a buildup or at least a warming up to get to the end point kind of deal, like the main message, because it doesn't come off good. I mean, if you start rambling off in the first 10 minutes about government evidence manipulation and things of that sort, anyone who doesn't know about it already is going to tune out. So it's like, how do we keep the door or keep the foot still in the public realm while at the same time showing them like, hey, here's a little bit of history that you didn't learn in high school. And time to catch up a little bit. And then, you know, if you give them that, I feel like then the people like, like they can believe like if you talked about like a prison prisoner experimentation, that's a well-known history towards especially a certain ethnicity where people go, OK, I go, OK, well, it's not a double standard. Like you can just they can do it over here, too. Like it's not just particularly that it's just we know more about that. It also happens like insane asylums with, you know, mentally challenged people or people with ADHD were given lobotomies and a whole slew of drugs like it's just people in positions of power that tend to abuse it to really get their main point across or whatever they want across. It doesn't always need to be some thing. It just it's like an investigation. You look at the Warren Commission, all these star-studded casts with great resumes. All right, well, people make mistakes, right? Whether those mistakes are intentional is the conspiracy part to it. But someone saying it's Lee Harvey Oswald without going into motive, if they're wrong, they're wrong. The HSCA proved a bunch of things the Warren Commission got wrong. So it's like they're just investigations. Like people make mistakes. You can move forward to it. It's not 100% exact science. Take the James Tag bullet. That one hitting the curb and bouncing up hit in the cheek. Well, if you listen to the phone call with Hoover, three shots fired and all of them hit, you know, oh, now we got a stray that comes out of nowhere. Okay, so now it's two shots fired. There you go. That 100% certainty of this was the way it happened. It just went down to like 50%. So that, that's what I just try and show people. And I feel like everyone can start getting on board with that. Then you can lead into like the deep state and all that. That's fine. <laughs> well, I agree. I totally agree with you. And I, I, I was always focused, as I did lots of presentations, I was always focused on what would be convincing. And I'll tell you right now, the one thing that got hostile press away from taking me on was uh, I had copies of Life magazine that had been altered. I had the first version that had gone out to some subscribers who got their uh, life by mail. And then the doctored version, which is what most of the public saw, where they, they actually changed which frames of the Zapruder film were shown. It would have had to come from Henry Luce himself. You would have had to have an order from the top. You're talking about millions of dollars spent to change an issue like that midstream, but that's what happened. Um, and a lot of people don't realize this, but I, when I had the two copies and put them side by side, the most hostile media people said, holy shit, how is that possible? I've never heard of that. 
the idea that time had or life had that film for a year uh, before they published that December 1964 issue with Gerald Ford being the key interviewee in it, it telling how the commission pieced it together and how they reached their conclusions and the fact that they had to change the photo. And the reason was they had not planned to show the head explosion, 313, uh, but what they showed instead was the head being pushed backward. Somebody, J. Edgar Hoover, somebody fairly powerful had to have said, oh my God, that's not going to work. And so they altered the issue uh, and put 313 in, which showed the head exploding. Wait, this is the film, uh, the panel's out of place, right? When they published the magazine? Well, they they substituted. It's not out of place. They substitute. No, no. They, it's out of place in the 26 volumes. Those are the only two frames that were uh, in the publication of the 26 volumes. They switched the frames. But in the in in the Life magazine, the actual uh, they showed uh, you know the actual um, clips from the film. They showed frames. I'm saying that Life magazine sent one out, and before that thing got to too many people, they actually stopped the press and changed the story. I'm saying that the Life magazine, the, the, uh, Paul Hoke wrote a, a I, I think it was Paul Hoke, it might have been Jerry Polikoff, but I think it was Paul Hoke wrote a piece, in, in the midst of death we are in life which detailed actually a number of other changes in the actual text. But the most obvious thing was that they they had a new photo in there. They put 313 in uh, with the explosion rather than uh, 314 or uh, 315 with the head backwards. I'm, I'm saying Life Magazine altered its issue. Now you gotta figure out who the hell has the clout and they got to have talked to the to lose the owner of the public. There's no way. And furthermore, it's a potentially disastrous thing to do because you're again potentially going to draw attention to it. And if you had a vigilant media, that would have been blown up all over the place, and you wouldn't be looking at me with a quizzical look. Well, how dangerous is it for a magazine to be able to print a retraction? I mean, that's the damage, huge damage to your credibility as a station or as a magazine. Right. They did. And they, of course, they didn't do a retraction. They basically redid the issue as though nothing had changed. Before and this is Gerald Ford telling how the commission figured out what happened. And this is the key photos. And they had to alter them after this is after God only knows how many fact checkers, editors and other people looked over and how many got to remember, you're talking about 12 months of work on this thing. and they had to change what they put out. Oh God, man, I'm telling you, the number of people that probably signed off on that. Yeah, I went into some TV shows where they are hostile as hell until I brought that out and he couldn't believe it. And and a, an example of this was a small Alexandria, Minnesota town you've never heard of, best known for the Viking runestone that's in the museum there. I was speaking at a college in the Western Minnesota and they asked if I would, come and do an interview. So I gave up my dinner and the students drove me there and drove me back. Um, and um, I said, well, look, it, 
if you're do, doing this about the talk I'm about to give, and they told me they were going to spend 15 minutes on it. I couldn't believe it. So I said, okay, how about loading a camera with my slides and I'll give you some selected pieces. And all I could tell you is everybody at the studio was hostile towards me. At the end of the presentation, they came up, shook my hand. The head of the station came in and said, how is this possible in America? Any self-respecting newsman. And what had blown them away was that Life magazine thing. Then they got open to the whole picture. And um, and I said nothing really inflammatory. I just pointed out there were some relatively serious problems with the notion of lone assassin. And the, the, the guy says, well, we want you back. Would you come back? And this needs a follow-up. And he was just excited. And it was adrenaline throughout the room. And all of a sudden, it wasn't hostility towards me or the topic. And um, I two days later, the students called me and said, Gary, that never aired. I said, it never aired. What do you mean? They, they, they did all that stuff, and they were all excited about it. They said, it didn't air. I said, well, maybe there was some explosion of the students said the stuff they said no we called and nobody would answer maybe they'll answer for you so i called the head of the station the man who had just done this whole thing about no american newsman and i said um i heard it didn't air he said yep um it didn't air um i said well do you recall our conversation where you said that no american newsman would collaborate or stuff and he kind of hesitatingly acknowledged that, yeah, we had had the comment. I said, well, you now know the answer to the question, as you know, I couldn't answer back then, which is why would people collaborate with this? Because you now are, as you termed it yourself, an accessory after the fact. And he said, well, I, and I said, well, how was the decision made? I mean, I'm owed at least that. I gave up an hour of time <laughs> And he said, well, the higher ups, I said, <laughs> I said, look, I hate to be blunt, but you're a small player in a small market in the middle of nowhere. Uh, unless you know about the Viking runestone, people don't even know where Alexander is. <laughs> Who the hell? I mean, well, you know, the network and stuff. I said, my God. I said, well, all I can say is, you know, the answer to the question you asked me that I couldn't answer. Why do people collaborate? That was a striking experience, but that's also the power of what you're talking about is a concrete piece of evidence. You just can't turn your, your eyes away from it. Well, there's journalistic journalistic ethics that start to play into the, the factor. I've had many discussions with people that have like left CNN, just giving me the behind the scenes of like CNN or Fox News or something. And they're like, I mean, if you're going to report on a story and you want to pass this story and they look at it and they go, okay, we have business relationships with this over here. So you can't run this story. And it's like, do you run it because you want to get the truth out there? Or at the same time, do you want to lose everything that you built and possibly your family's only source of income in a sense? So it's like, there's a real danger in that, which I think is important. There's like independent press. I think if you give someone, you know, I don't really like the 20 minute segments that they do on giant news stations. I feel like if you give someone an hour to two hours, to be able to discuss it. But you probably know through just talking about JFK related material, you wouldn't think that you were a conspiracy theorist. Like even when I look at like some people that are really deep into it and they go extreme, like where it seems like they might've gone a little too far. I'm like, oh my God, thank God I'm not that. But then you're talking to someone who's not in it at all. And they're looking at you the way you looked at that guy. 
And it's like, oh, wait, hold on. I got to show you documentation. It's not easy if you're sitting at a bar and you're talking about JFK to be able to pull out documentation out of your pocket and be able to show them. And then once the public can kind of listen to you and actually see what you're showing, like at Bart, for instance, Bart Camp's a friend of mine. He went into the fingerprints and paraffin tests and all these types of stuff. I had him for an hour and a half just explain and show slides and pictures and things. And you don't want to click on it if you don't know about JFK because you look at it and you go, oh, great, a conspiracy theory, and you scroll down. But then once you start listening 25 minutes in, 30 minutes in, you see how much documentation he has. And it's just like every other researcher. You go, oh, my God, it's actually making a lot more sense. And it's like, oh, people just need to see that. Like the way you've explained things throughout this episode, you've given me clarification on things as well too. People just need to see like, okay, this person's not like tinfoil hat. He's just showing that there's like, okay, we know about abuses of government power in other countries. What happens if it has, happens domestically? Mm -hmm. Well, the um, I don't know if anybody's talked to you about the CBS piece, but they did that big piece uh, that was supposedly reviewing the Warren report uh, and you've got, Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, people like this. And of course, Rather's kind of screwed up. He's got this, he, he looks at the Zap Ruder film and doesn't see the head going back. But that aside, CBS, um, Robert Richter, the associate producer, uh, dealt with me and many other critics and with just the promise of being honest about it. And so did quite a bit of work. And um. I got a call from him before the thing aired and he said, I just want to start by saying, I, I know that you and others helped us because, you know, really concerned about the truth and that I promised that we would be honest and this was going to have integrity. They did things like they tested the rifle similar to rifle. They did a bunch of different things. They had a moving vehicle rather than still target. They tried to replicate and he said, we're coming out for the commission. I said, well, your own test showed that that was bullshit. He said, look, he said, I I, I feel terrible and I, I hope someday to, but he said that in this case, my family and my own ability to ever work in the field it, it was at issue. And he said, I'm really sorry, but I, I chose self-interest over, but he said, I, I would never have dreamed I would have done this. I honestly believe what I said. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't being dishonest at the time. It's just, I, I had no idea what would be at stake. And so Richter, uh, and he talked to Tink Thompson, he talked to other people, but basically among the things in the show did, they did these rifle tests. Now, bear in mind. Is that the target that's moving 75 yards away and they're shooting at it? And I think one guy got close, but it was still off. Like it wasn't exactly like how Oswald did it. Right. And what they didn't tell you was that um, two thirds of the shots couldn't be fired in that time period. So that they discarded all that data and didn't tell you about it. But that in effect, what they found is almost nobody could fire that fast. And bear in mind, they were dealing with cleaned up rifles. Uh, when the FBI tested the original rifle, uh, they found they had to oil it uh, to get it to function well. They weren't looking at the timing, but we do know that they had to clean the weapon. The second piece we know is that the weapon did not fire accurately. All the shots were high and to the right at the targets, the stationary targets. And um, 
they had to, and there was a battle over whether it was three or four metal shims had to be put under the site. That's where the battle was over whether the site had been uh, factory mounted or not. And uh, But the site was off. So essentially, even a marksman using it would miss. Um, and bear in mind, high and to the right, in this case, you'd miss the whole car, miss everything. So it isn't just a question of the ammo, but it's a question of the weapon itself. But CBS's people were using a weapon of that type that was in fine condition as the site worked, but they couldn't get three shots off in that time. That's what they didn't tell the TV audience, that in effect, almost nobody could get off three shots, let alone three shots that actually hit. So, uh, I mean, that's an example of what they did, but they they did their own stuff and they falsified it. Not the, not the stuff, but they falsified what they told you about it. And that was uh, pretty disgusting for us who gave them a lot of time and helping them. And then to have that uh, betrayal. And, you know, Richter seemed like a fine person. I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of people that I would say, other than for their behavior around this case, I would probably like or trust or feel good about, but I'm shocked by the degree to which people can dip pretty low. Not that that's uncommon. We're seeing that today with a whole lot of national stuff where you can barely be a congressman running for cover and fearing for their lives and calling home saying, I may be dead. Now talk, talking as though there wasn't a riot at the Capitol. <laughs> I but it's got, that I, level of disbelief. I just got one last question for you, but I think I, I think I spaced on it. Never mind. Well, that was perfect. It's the first time it's ever happened to me. Oh yeah, witness testimonies. You mentioned something before about you know like talking to people, be able to tell like kind of their state as well too. But when it comes to witness testimonies, I mean, I've talked to memory experts that talk about you can't really trust eyewitness testimony unless it's like someone that experienced trauma or like war veterans, for instance. Like sometimes you're able to account for a lot more detail than an average public who might be frantic and running around trying to either get out of the situation. But you also, in this case, when you look even at some of the evidence that you can tell is manipulated, the public doesn't know a whole lot about medical evidence, doesn't know a whole lot about ballistic evidence. So what the government says is this is what happened. They can pitch it any way that they want, and the public's not going to question because they just don't know. But you can trust witness testimonies, in my opinion, on certain things like very detailed stuff where it sounds like it would be too creative or too crazy to make up like Jack Anderson's statements about J. Edgar Hoover and he talks about like the relationship with Clyde Tolson. Whether people want to say it's a conspiracy or not, it is so detailed and it's on national television in his interview where I've never heard of anything close to that before and I've talked to him as 1,500 people. So I'm just saying I put a little bit more weight in that and then it's kind of like the guy who saw Ruby in Traficante's prison as well, too. I mean, there's later collaborating stuff, which is that Ruby was in Havana in the time that guy said he was. Um, there's no way he would have known that. It would have been a one in a million guess or what people call a coincidence. But when you have 70-something people or 80-something people all accounting for a back wound or something of a sort that fits what the drawings and these depictions do, but then the final say from the government is nothing even close to the sort – 
I feel like in that case, you can start trusting a lot of those witness statements. Now, you don't have to get into like, obviously, like if you're going to, you might not even be able to use it in court, but what are your thoughts on witness statements compared to looking at the physical evidence? Well, I think you hit it right on the head. The issue is uh, two things, uh, whether or not there's other ways to confirm parts of the story, uh, other evidence that that weighs in on it. Uh, uh, that makes it more clear that at least it was possible. That's important. And the second thing is that you're right about memory. Um, it's quirky, and it depends what we're talking about a memory of. Uh, and was it based on an observation that took place over a period of time, or are we talking about a quick shot at something? We know they research on memory with, uh, like by Liz Loftus and others, where a figure runs across a classroom and what do people take on that? That's a lot different than you observed a professor lecturing for an hour. Uh, your memory of that may be a whole lot better than your ability to discern that person that's surprised you and, and you know struck across. So I think it all depends what it is. And the issue is more what would tend to confirm or disconfirm something. It's it, And that's the problem. You do need to remember that somebody seeing Oswald somewhere, we know some of those were not Oswald. Um, but the question is, what's the big picture? Uh, was it possible for Oswald to be there at the time? Things like that, as what you said with the Traficante piece. Was it possible? And one of the problems the commission had is a whole bunch of stuff they had that would have absolutely tied this case together the so-called double Oswald incidents where people used the name Leon or Lee or Oswald and went and did something. When we know that Oswald was somewhere else, those became seriously problematic for the commission. That's an example of where um, somebody was a witness, but was in, in effect being fooled by somebody on purpose who, you know, who was it that visited Sylvia Odio? Who was Leopoldo? Those are those are concrete questions where you have a witness, but the witness didn't know the person, just knew what name was used or what references were made and so forth. So I think the bottom line is you need to have, to the degree possible, these things lined up. And that means you're going to have some witness observations that are in the cannot be sure category. Some are going to be extremely likely. Some are going to be extremely unlikely. Some are going to be impossible. And it's it it all depends on the circumstance. I get into this a bit because I testify in uh, professional misconduct cases where there can be a he said, she said. And the question remains about what kinds of things are likely to be remembered, what are not, what are dead on exact descriptions of clothing or things like this, for example, um, where somebody has a pretty firm memory, I tend to you know, believe it. So I, I don't have a general rule in memory other than you need to be thinking about the, these highly likely or certainty, question mark, unlikely or couldn't have happened. And that's, you know, sort of five levels of and it all depends. Well, Gary, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. We've almost been going for two hours, but is there a place where people can find your links? Uh, 
I don't have I don't have anything. There's a bunch of stuff posted about work I've done, but I I don't it's I don't have a website or anything like that. So uh, the Weisberg paper is a bunch of stuff. I get a lot of calls based on stuff that's been posted up. I think uh, watch uh, the uh, um, piece I did for the Saturday Evening Post that was never published. Um, um, a legacy of fear is, I believe, up on the internet. So there, if you Google my name, you'll also find Tom Bethel's notes about the meeting I had with Garrison that he was not present for, but he was trying to find out what we talked about. I mean, if you Google my name and the assassination, you'll find stuff. So, well, I'll link any links I'll be able to find any articles that you wrote, and I'll put it in the description for people to be able to check out your work. And I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of How the Blank Podcast.